to be with you guys again here Sunday morning and, and making some more progress in the, in the book of Romans. There's a slight uh, shift of focus in Romans in our passage today. Chapter 4 of, of Romans, I, I think we spent five or six weeks studying <clears throat> and mainly what we've been learning about in, in Romans chapter 4 is namely justification by faith and then you and I have been given a really a great illustration of it in Abraham him, him being the chief Old Testament example of what uh, justification by faith means and if you've been taking in the breadth of Romans in, in our study, if you've been trying to connect the dots in your mind as we worked our way from chapter 1 through to uh, chapter 4 and, and 5 and beyond, you are yourself beginning to put together a, a worldview, an understanding of life and God that is truly unique in, uh, in who we know men to be and and who we know God to be. There, there really is nothing like this gospel in the world. Look at Romans uh, 1 and 16. And by the way, there, there's a piece of paper on, on the table back there that probably has 10 or 15 references to scripture there. If, if sometimes you lose track of where I'm at, that piece of paper there might help you. And if you want one, you can raise your hand and Mary Ann might hand one to you, possibly. I don't normally try to sprinkle our, our sermons with too, too, too many cross-references, but today is going to have more than five or six. So you're going to want to have one of those pieces of paper there with these references on it. We're going to hit... Uh, seven or eight references uh, fairly quickly here right out of the book of Romans so that in your mind you can trace some of the key things I'm thinking about as, as we get ready to push into chapter 5 here right now. Chapter 1 and, and verse 16, crucial place for understanding Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. We suppress the truth and unrighteousness crucial, crucial place in understanding the book of Romans. Turn the page in your Bible to chapter 2 and verse 3. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, you'll escape the judgment of God. You remember the argument that is beginning to be made in Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 1, the righteousness of God revealed, the wrath of God revealed. Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 2, in, in a way we could say the crosshairs of the gospel are, are defined here. Do you think those, you who judge, those practicing these sinful things we've just mentioned in chapter 1, do you think that your ability to see them and to judge them wrong, do you think that somehow excludes you from their guilt, the charge of sin? The, the point is, is more precisely and more acutely made at Romans 3.9. Turn the page in your Bible again, I'm assuming. Maybe you'll have to turn the page. What then? Are we any better than they? You, you, re, you remember there is this interesting discussion taking place between the sinful pagan 
and the theoretically righteous Jew. The, the, the Jew sees themselves specially privileged. And there is an argument taking place where this person who, who cannot feel the charge of the gospel against themselves, that one who cannot see himself as being accused and charged by God, there's this argument taking place as, as, as he thinks about all these bad people the gospel is talking about. He cannot see himself. So chapter 3 is asking this question, what then are we, and insert the word Jews maybe right there, are we Jews better than they? Are we better than those pagans who are being excoriated here in chapter 1 and 2? And he says, not at all. We're not better. We had previously charged both Jews and Greeks. They are all under sin as it is written. There is none righteous. No, not one. A fantastically crucial argument in this book is lodged right here. Nobody, nobody stands outside the judgmental gaze of the judge as in everyone is guilty, brutally guilty. I mean, you and I would like to think, well, yeah, I'm a little bit guilty, but I'm not as guilty as the guilty guilty. We, we, we do love to see sin in shades of gray so that we don't feel too badly about ourselves. We, we really do like to think of ourselves as, as more or less favored in God's view. We want to think, well, God does think my kind of good is better than bad. We do. We, we, we just love ourselves too much to see ourselves and say, I... I am, I am a wretch. I am, I am as perverse a sinner as there is. But the, the, the tenor and the weight and the point of what you read until you get to 3, 9, and 10 is this. Don't find yourself a little niche to escape the, the gaze of God's judgment. The gospel is for those who are under his wrath. The gospel is for those who fear his judgment. Romans 3.20 is another crucial argument. Therefore, by deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. There's a glorious change of wind in this gospel message here. No one will be found righteous by the law, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. This is the most glorious revelation being, being pulled back here for you to behold, for you to attempt to comprehend in its depth being witnessed by the law and the prophets, or in other words, the Old Testament writers, the Old Testament prophets, they saw this coming, they anticipate this coming as well. Even the righteousness of God, the righteousness of law, or the righteousness of God apart from the law, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Unanticipated by many, if not most, gospel listeners, gospel hearers. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there's no difference. In other words, all here means pagans and Jews. Jews and Greeks. That's who all is speaking about here. Both these kinds of people are being seen guilty in sin by the same standard. Both of these groups of people will be found righteous by their faith in Christ, the same standard. There is no difference, it says there at the end of verse 22. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified 
and and take that word, mark it somehow. That word justified is 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 close enough to being identical to the word righteousness in verse 21. Being righteousified freely. In other words, the righteousness required for salvation is justification. The righteousness of God is revealed. Righteousness becomes the reality of the one who has put his faith in Christ. Justification is by faith in the just one, in the righteous one. His righteousness becomes yours. So verse 24 calls that being justified. The person who has believed is justified freely by his grace, God's grace, through the redemption. The purchase price of salvation is called redemption. Not gold, not silver, the blood of the lamb shed for sinners. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation is satisfaction of the wrath of God at the end of the days, at the day of judgment. Men will face his judgment themselves, receive it in themselves, or that wrath of God is placed on Christ on the cross. This is called propitiation. The Redeemer is the propitiatory. The the, the one who receives the wrath of God is our propitiation. By his blood it says, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Amazing verse of scripture. I've been thinking as I'm working on this, that might be our next memory verse here, even though it's three or four verses. Incredibly crucial lines in this letter of faith to you who would Live forever if you would believe it by faith. Incredibly important passage here. Verse 5 explains some of how this works in chapter 4. Kick over to chapter 4, look at verse 5. But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Righteousness is by faith in Christ. This crucial argument, this important argument taking place in chapter 4 of Romans, justification by faith, faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace alone, to him who does not work. I love it that he said it in the negative way like that. Him who does not work. Positively says, but believes on him who justifies. Look at verse 16. Therefore, it is of faith. Justification is of faith. Salvation is of faith. The righteousness that God requires is of faith. Why? This is an important thing. Notice the connection here, that it might be according to grace. In other words, you can only have it by believing in this sacrifice, this substitute sacrifice on your behalf. Why? Because it must be by grace. Why? Because God alone will get the praise. God alone will be glorified for salvation. This is why it must be by faith. So. An amazing truth that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. You realize that the offer of salvation by grace is an amazing component of your security in God's offer of salvation. In other words, if God saves by grace, if your faith in the Savior, if your faith in the shed blood of Christ, if your faith in the righteousness of Christ and in the justice of God, if your faith results in your justification, you can't un unbelieve and make that untrue. In other words, 
if it is the grace of God that has saved a person, then your assurance of salvation is as sure as the Savior is. It's as sure as the satisfaction of the judge is. You understand how this is an argument for assurance of salvation? It's an incredibly important passage here in the book of Romans. Of course, you guys have heard me say this now six times, how crucial these things are here. The gospel isn't supposed to be simple, although it's simple. It's easy to believe the simple tenets of the gospel. But the gospel is complex, and it's gloriously rich in its detail. It's glorious in its arguments. So we've been studying this for weeks now, weeks and weeks. We've been working our way through these passages. By the time you get to verse 20 of chapter 4, we're, we're reflecting on Abraham and on Abraham's hearing of the promise made to him in Genesis. Abraham hears. Abraham believes. It's credited to him as righteousness. And, and you and I are told the way he heard and believed is, is the way we are to hear and believe. Look at verse 20. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. The focus of Abraham's mind and heart is on the promiser, on the power of the promiser, on the authority of the promiser, the ability of the promiser to do what he says he's going to do. Abraham, in the presence of him, hears and believes. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced what he had promised. He was also able to perform. Therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now listen carefully. It was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead who was delivered up because of our offenses and when raised because of our justification. It is written for you. This has been written for you, not for Abraham alone. This has been written for you, believers. That that, that righteousness is imputed to you who would believe. What an amazing testimony of the very, very crucial belief you must have and you must maintain, the word of God is the voice of God. In other words, the basis of of this promise is on what you will or won't read. Will you read this testimony and believe it? The apostle says this has been written not just for Abraham's sake. This has been written for your sake. Are you readers so that you can know God's promises? Are you readers so that you can know the shepherd's voice? Know who to trust? Know who to rely on? Know by what means, by what basis you're going to hear him and rely on him? I think this is an amazing, this is a great passage here. It's written for you. This wasn't written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also. A glorious testimony to the importance and the authority of the written word of God. Doesn't this chapter ask if you have read and believed? Doesn't it? It's been written for you to believe. What if you're reading that and go, well, I've never read it before. Well, you should feel guilty of not having written or not having read what was written for you to believe. The written word speaks about imputed righteousness by the gracious gift of faith in Christ. Now the book of Romans began, we didn't read it yet here this morning, but it began saying that Paul is an apostle by the will of God, right? That's how he introduces himself here in, in the book of Romans. He's an apostle by the will of God. Do you believe the written, preached word in the book of Romans? Do you believe that? It means he's a prophet. It means he's one of the handful of, I'll call them anointed, 
prophets, hand-chosen prophets of the, of the new covenant. And he preaches the gospel unashamedly because it is the power of God and salvation for everyone who believes. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? These are written so that you would believe. He believes in the gospel. The righteousness of God is revealed and, and he has written that God's wrath is revealed from heaven. You believe in the coming wrath of God by his written revelation you believe the wrath of God is coming it's coming sometimes it's called the day of judgment the wrath of God is coming this is written for us to believe Men know, it says in the beginning of the book of Romans, men know the deity of God, they know the eternality of God, they know the righteousness of God and his righteous judgment. They know these things. All men know these things. Do you believe that? Do you believe all men know the eternality and the deity and the righteousness of God? Do you believe all men know that? The Bible says it. And that means it is one of your arguments you even bring against an unbeliever. It means you can say with a straight face and a convinced heart, you know God is the eternal God. You know he is the judge of all men and the day of judgment comes. You can say that. And you can trust the spirit of God brings conviction to those words. They're true words. You don't have to say it meanly. But you can say it with conviction. It's true. Do you believe that? These have been written for you who believe, who have been imputed with the righteousness of Christ. Can you tell these ones that they they just naturally live according to their sinful nature? They do according to their own sensuality. They, they live and they don't mind their own rebelliousness and their own depravity. This is the preached word. Men choose their own wisdom. Men choose their own will. They don't like the truth of God. They don't like the light of the gospel. This is the revealed truth in the gospel of Romans. This is the gospel of Romans. These are all evidences of their unrighteousness. These are all evidences of your unrighteousness. The the book of Romans exposes you to your sinfulness and your unrighteousness. And you and I must read this and we must believe this. They are proof of God's righteousness and condemnation. Is God righteous to condemn the lost? Is God righteous to condemn sinners? You might struggle with that. You might feel he's too harsh because you you believe maybe they've never heard of him or they've never really had a fair chance to hear about him. You believe God is right to condemn all men? Every single man, woman, and child on planet Earth, do you think he would be right to do that? Think about that. Would he be right to do that? I think some of you may find a little check in your heart saying that wouldn't be fair if you did that. And you must confront your own heart. You must preach to your own heart and remind yourself that God is perfectly righteous and just and no man deserves salvation. The gospel is offered to the lost and the unrighteous that they might hear and they might believe These are written. Look at the last words of chapter 4. He was delivered up because of our offenses, it says. And he was raised because of our justification. These things are written so that men might believe. And the resurrection of Christ being really the, the, the glorious testimony of God 
to the veracity of this gospel is the resurrection of Christ, isn't it? Isn't the resurrection of Christ just a, just a, the perfection of the gospel, a glorious witness to the wonder of the gospel, the one who said, if you believe in me, you will never die. They killed him, and he rose from the grave. He rose from the grave, victorious over death. This is, this is the wonder and the glory of the gospel that we are to read and to hear and to believe. And he's raised for our justification. That is, he, his resurrection is the vindication of your belief in the Savior. What a glorious truth. This is where we're at. The Lord Jesus is justification for sinners when you properly understand the gospel. The Lord is our hope. He is our justification. And justification is the transfer of the righteousness of Christ to sinners by their belief in the death and resurrection and the satisfaction of God for us. This is our justification. Your status permanently and forever changed because of justification. And one thing that changes here at chapter 5 is as we move into chapter 5 is that there is a revelation of, of something that I don't know that we would have anticipated about justification unless we read it. There, there, there is a revelation taking place here at chapter 5 that is rather remarkable, revealing a, a, a privilege, even a, I might say, revealing a, a mood that a Christian can have, a, a state of, of satisfaction and joy that a Christian can have. Justification is a legal thing, right? We've talked about justification in terms of it being a, a forensic, a, a judicial uh, right-wrong, black-white legal thing that happens between the guilty sinner and the judge. Justification is the rending of the verdict, innocent, because of the innocence of Christ granted to the guilty one. But it is also, justification is also a doorway into a new place, a doorway into a, a room. And the people in this room experience other benefits. There, there, there are things that become the experience of and even the right of the person who has gone into this room. And this is kind of part of the picture that I think we read here as we get into chapter 5. So look at chapter 5 and verse 1. He says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access into faith, I'm sorry, access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. I'm going to stop right there. I'm not even sure we'll get that far this morning. Justification changes God's, I, I've, I've written his, his spirit toward you, as in not the third person of the Trinity, but, but sort of like his attitude toward you. Justification has not only accomplished a legal change of your status before him because of the righteousness of Christ, but it has also changed the, the, the dynamic of the relationship between you and God. Colossians 1.21 makes an interesting reference to this reality. Colossians 1.21 says, You who once were alienated and enemies in your mind, by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled. You know, when an unbeliever hears the gospel, it makes him mad because he's being called a sinner. He's being called condemned. He's being said that the things that he likes to do, he can't do. 
He's an enemy in his mind against the one who says what is just and what is right. He doesn't even know, maybe, that he hates God. Colossians says, you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind. You see what we just read in chapter 5 and verse 1. It says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who is an enemy in his mind, the one who is hostile in his mind, is now at peace because of Christ. The judge who has the right to take the life of all men and women, the judge who is perfectly righteous and holy, now has no animosity toward you who have been justified. Justification has changed the nature of that interrelational dynamic. It's, it's changed that. If your carelessness once upon a time caused a fire that destroyed somebody's house, you're playing with matches, your, your brush pile burns out of control, burns somebody's house down. Or let's say you're driving down the road and you, you lose focus of what you're doing for a second, your car drifts a little bit, bam, you hit somebody and you kill them. Something terrible like this happens. Imagine the offended one. Imagine the survivor of the one you had killed. Imagine the person who owned the home that you burned down. You come into the room with that person in the room. You might even just walk right back out the door again. You don't want to face them. You know they hate you. And and depending on your degree of integrity, you might think they rightly hate you for burning down their house or for killing their child, right? There's, there's something there and you're just like, oh, I, I can't deal with that. that. That stress. This is the guilt between you and the judge. This is the nature of your relationship between God and you before justification in Christ. Because you have been a constant rebel against the righteousness of God. A constant criminal against all of his possessions, people and planet. Everything you do is for you. Everything you do is ignorant of his sovereignty of the planet, sovereignty of people. You come into the room and he's in the room, you should skunk out the back door because you are a criminal. You are an abusive, lying, deceiving crook to this holy and righteous God. But by the justification that is by faith in Christ, you who once were alienated from him are now at peace with him. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that amazing? This is what Romans 5 begins to tell us about. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have peace with him. The Lord Jesus Christ has become the reason for our peace. Look at Psalm chapter 30 and verse 5. Psalm chapter 30, verse 5. His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Of course, this may simply be speaking of God's chastisements. Because obviously Psalm 30 verse 5 is, is something spoken for a believer who's facing the anger of God. But God's anger for a believer can be momentarily because of Christ. Because of Christ. Without Christ it's permanent. There is no hope for joy without justification. What a 
What a glorious truth. So pick up from we have peace, 5.1, in the middle of the phrase, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope and the glory of God. By the same Christ, by the same Savior, we see that we have access because of Christ. There is a way because of Christ. So, in a sense, Christ is a path or Christ is a door. And by your faith in Christ, justification is yours and there is a door by which you enter the way he puts it, enter into grace in which we now stand. We stand in a place called grace. I love noticing these, these passages where you move from one place to another that isn't from one state to another. We're not going from California to South Carolina. But you are going from a place where, we'll think about it for a moment here, but in, in, in the one room it's not grace. But by justification, you have access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. There's, there's a movement taking place and you're going from one place to another because of your faith in Christ. It's a very interesting journey, it, 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 this, this, this movement from one to the other. It left somewhere, has entered into somewhere else. And I wonder if you've thought very often about where you were before you could enter into the grace of God in Christ. Where were you before you could stand in grace? John 1, 4-5 gives us one little picture of it. John 1, 4-5 speaks about the coming of the Messiah to the world. Remember John's explanation begins, In the beginning was the Word. And eventually we see the word takes on flesh and blood. But look at him in, in, in verse 4. In him was life, and the life, the life of Christ, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The Savior has a, a, a light to him by which men can see. But look at verse 5. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Where, where were you before you could stand in grace? The Gospel of John, in many ways, says you are in darkness, which is a reference to your stupidity. It's a reference to your contentedness and sin. Being in darkness means you don't know what you don't know. It means you like what you shouldn't like. The darkness did not comprehend it. What is it like to be unable to comprehend the only righteousness there is in the universe? What is it to be completely ignorant of the Son of God and the offer of eternal life? If, if, if that is the state of some men, and I believe it's pretty explicitly implied here, right? The darkness did not comprehend it. That means they have no idea of where he is or who he is or what he's like. If they can't comprehend it, we're talking utter stupidity and ignorance. How lost is a lost person? Where are you when you are not standing in grace? What is it like to be in total darkness? You think about that? Lostness isn't sort of lost. It's not a little bit lost. Think about that. Utterly lost. The darkness did not comprehend it. Romans 1.18, which we already read. Here's another place where you were before you got to stand in grace. Romans 1.18 said that all of the ungodly and unrighteous were under his wrath. Where are you before you stand in grace? You're under the wrath of God. 2.12, Romans 2.12 offers another perspective of where you are when you're not standing in grace. As many have sinned without the law will perish 
without the law. As many have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. Where are you when you don't stand in grace? Well, whether or not you have the law. Those in the law, those out of the law, those are two distinct groups. Where are you when you don't stand in the grace of the justification of Christ? You stand in a land called Parishville. You will perish. Perish. It's a horrible thought. It means you're under condemnation when you didn't stand in grace. Chapter 3, verse 9 says a nearly identical thing. All of sin and the wages of sin is death, says Romans 6.23. All of sin. Where did you stand when you were not standing in grace? You're standing on death row. Psalm 1.1. Look at Psalm 1.1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. A man is with the ungodly if he's not standing in grace. He's in the path with sinners. He's in the seat of the scorner. The Bible's full of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of testimonies of where a man was. But by the grace of God, men left the darkness. Believers left ignorance. They left their contentedness and their lostness. They heard the call of Christ when, when the Lord Jesus calls to the thirsty or he calls to the hungry. Those who were in the dark began to see and those who were deaf began to hear. And they left. They left their ignorance. They left death row. They left sin. Entering into an understanding. Believing the Christ and his righteousness. The reference in Isaiah 61 is a great one because the Lord Jesus himself preached it. Look at the reference in Isaiah 61, 1-3. When somebody has heard the Christ call to them, and the Spirit of God begins to open somebody's eyes, soften somebody's heart, listen to what the Lord Jesus said. He, he preached this in Luke chapter 4. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This is Isaiah 61 and verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, the Lord Jesus says, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He didn't come to preach good tidings to the rich, the poor. Blessed are the poor. Remember he said that in Matthew? Blessed are the poor. He came to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, opening of the prison of those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. John 12, 32, he says, When I, the Son of Man, be lifted up, will draw all men to myself. The Lord Jesus, by his own supernatural ability and plan, gives sight to blind. He gives understanding to the dumb. And he calls to these ones. And by grace... By grace, men leave darkness. By grace, the, the stupid understand and the deaf hear and the lost find salvation. 2 Corinthians 4.6 is a great reference. It says, 
For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness who has shown in our hearts. Think about that. Think about this, the phrases that are being put together here. God commanded light to shine out of darkness is obviously referring to the creation act in the book of Genesis. There was no light. God says, let there be light. And there was light. Right? But here in Corinthians, we're not talking about the Genesis creation. We are talking about the regeneration creation. We're talking about the born again creation. Once you were in darkness, justification by the magnificent grace of God does what? Look in the middle of of this passage here, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. What is this creative God speaking creation create in a darkened, ignorant man. What does it create? It speaks into their hearts, it says, bringing the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Isn't that amazing? Are you amazed? Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice and hope and the glory of God. The Christian is revealed to by the Savior. We are revealed the Christ by God Himself. The light of the gospel shines in our in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God on the face of Christ. We stand in grace in this place of God's generosity. This place of God's favor. This place of God's joy. Here is a place where the Christian stands. And here is a place where the Christian rejoices in hope of the glory of God. They were once not there. But by grace we now stand in this place. Just for a moment here, I want to think... And, and there's no way I, I come close to doing this justice. It's beyond me. But it says we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God when we stand here in this place of God's grace that is ours because of justification. Christian joy revels in and glories in the grace of God. It, it has become our Privilege because of justification in Christ. To put it in contrast, Romans 3.23 said, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay, simple gospel sort of thing, right? All have sinned and fall short of it. But because of justification and in Christ, you stand in His grace and you are not short of the glory of God anymore. The glory of God is, is yours to share and to revel in. You don't have to stand outside from a million miles away seeing the glory of God shine somewhere there in the heavens. But because of God's grace in Christ, you've invited to stand in it. Psalm 17, 15 says, As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to die tonight or tomorrow or next month? What it would be like? The person who has put their faith in the righteous son, the person who has trusted the son and has shed blood for your redemption, has been utterly changed. Your rights as an innocent one, your anticipations of the glory of God in the eternal realm to come. This, this psalm is just wonderful, isn't it? Psalm 17, 15, As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. So much like Job's word, isn't it? 
Job knows he will see the Savior at the end. In his own flesh, with his own eyes, he will see him. The psalmist saying, as for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Those who have believed in and trusted the Lord Jesus, as Abraham believed and was credited with righteousness, your your faith in the Lord Jesus, meaning this massive complex of your guilt and God's righteousness and our need for forgiveness and, and our receiving forgiveness by trusting in Christ. Those who have believed are justified and justified means peace with God. It means a right anticipation and sharing in the glory of God forever because Christ has brought us into this grace. Christ has brought us into this grace and where we stand and rejoice in hope in the glory of God. The gospel not only is an offer of eternal life, but these these unimaginable benefits of, of peace and glories in and with God are just beyond imagination. I want to ask you to bow your heads and pray with me for a moment and then we'll sing Amazing Grace. Thank you, mighty God. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the Savior, the preaching Savior. The Savior who revealed our own sinfulness and our offer of hope and life in him. Thank you. We praise you for the gospel. We praise you for justification. We praise you for the offer of, of a glorious life and the life to come. Thank you, Lord. We pray these things in the name of Christ, the Savior. Amen. Let's stand and sing uh, Amazing Grace together.